0: 1. The Notebooks of Leonardo da Vinci Volume 1 translated by Jean-Paul Richter Preface. A singular fatality has ruled the destiny of nearly all the most famous of Leonardo da Vinci's works. Two of the three most important were never completed, obstacles having arisen during his lifetime, which obliged him to leave them unfinished, namely the Sforza monument and the wall painting of the Battle of Enviari while the third the picture of the Last Supper at Milan has suffered irremediable injury from decay and the repeated restorations to which it was recklessly subjected during those Svith and centuries. Nevertheless, no other picture of the Renaissance has become so well known and popular through copies of every description, Vasari says, and rightly, in his life of Leonardo, that he labored much more by his word than in fact or by deed and the biographer evidently had in his mind the numerous works in manuscript which have been preserved to this day. To us, now, it seems almost inexplicable that these valuable and interesting original texts should have remained so long unpublished, and indeed forgotten. It is certain that during the fifteenth and Svith centuries their exceptional value was highly appreciated. This is proved not merely by the prices which they commanded. But also by the exceptional interest which has been attached to the change of ownership of merely a few pages of manuscript. That, notwithstanding this eagerness to possess the manuscripts, their contents remain a mystery, can only be accounted for by the many and great difficulties attending the task of deciphering them. The handwriting is so peculiar that it requires considerable practice to read even a few detached phrases, much more to solve with any certainty the numerous difficulties of alternative readings and to master the sense as a connected whole, Vasari observes with reference to Leonardo's writing, he wrote backwards, in rude characters, and with the left hand, so that anyone who is not practiced in reading them, cannot understand them, the aid of a mirror in reading reversed handwriting appears to me available only for a first experimental reading, speaking from my own experience, the persistent use of it is too fatiguing and inconvenient to be practically advisable considering the enormous mass of manuscripts to be deciphered, and as, after all, Leonardo's handwriting runs backwards just as all oriental character runs backwards that is to say from right to left the difficulty of reading direct from the writing is not insuperable, this obvious peculiarity in the writing is not, however, by any means the only obstacle in the way of mastering the text, Leonardo made use of an orthography peculiar to himself, he had a fashion of amalgamating several short words into a one long one. Or, again, he would quite arbitrarily divide a long word into two separate halves. Added to this there is no punctuation whatever to regulate the division and construction of the sentences. Nor are there any accents and the reader may imagine that such difficulties were almost sufficient to make the task seem a desperate one to a beginner. It is therefore not surprising that the good intentions of some of Leonardo's most reverend admirers should have failed. Leonardo's literary labours in various departments both of art and of science word are those essentially of an inquirer; hence the analytical method is that which he employs in arguing out his investigations and dissertations, the vast structure of his scientific theories is consequently built up of numerous separate researches, and it is much to be lamented that he should never have collated and arranged them, his love for detailed researches it seems to me was the reason that in almost all the manuscripts The different paragraphs appear to us to be in utter confusion, on one and the same page. Observations on the most dissimilar subjects follow each other without any connection. A page, for instance, will begin with some principles of astronomy, or the motion of the earth, then come the laws of sound, and finally some precepts as to color. Another page will begin with his investigations on the structure of the intestines, and end with philosophical remarks as to the relations of poetry to painting and so forth. Leonardo himself lamented this confusion, and for that reason I do not think that the publication of the texts in the order in which they occur in the originals would at all fulfill his intentions. No reader could find his way through such a labyrinth, Leonardo himself could not have done it. Added to this, more than half of the 5,000 manuscript pages which now remain to us, are written on loose leaves and at present arranged in a manner which has no justification beyond the fancy of the collector who first brought them together to make volumes of more or less extent, nay, even in the volumes, the pages of which were numbered by Leonardo himself, their order, so far as the connection of the texts was concerned, was obviously a matter of indifference to him, the only point he seems to have kept in view, when first writing down his notes. Was that each observation should be complete to the end on the page on which it was begun. The exceptions to this rule are extremely few, and it is certainly noteworthy that we find in such cases, in bound volumes with his numbered pages, the written observations, turn over. This is the continuation of the previous page. And the like, is not this sufficient to prove that it was only in quite exceptional cases that the writer intended the consecutive pages to remain connected, when he should, at last, Carry out the often planned arrangement of his writings. What this final arrangement was to be, Leonardo has in most cases indicated with considerable completeness. In other cases this authoritative clue is wanting. But the difficulties arising from this are not insuperable, for, as the subject of the separate paragraphs is always distinct and well defined in itself, it is quite possible to construct a well planned whole, out of the scattered materials of his scientific system. And I may venture to state that I have devoted a special care and thought to the due execution of this responsible task. The beginning of Leonardo's literary laborers dates from about his 37th year, and he seems to have carried them on without any serious interruption till his death. Thus the manuscripts that remain represent a period of about 30 years. Within this space of time his handwriting altered so little that it is impossible to judge from it of the date of any particular text. The exact dates. Indeed can only be assigned to certain notebooks in which the year is incidentally indicated, and in which the order of the leaves has not been altered since Leonardo used them. The assistance these afford for a chronological arrangement of the manuscripts is generally self-evident. By this clue I have assigned to the original manuscripts now scattered through England, Italy and France, the order of their production as in many matters of detail it is highly important to be able to verify the time and place at which certain observations were made and registered. For this purpose the bibliography of the manuscripts given at the end of volume II, may be regarded as an index, not far short of complete, of all Leonardo's literary works now extant, the consecutive numbers from 1 to 1566 at the head of each passage in this work indicate their logical sequence with reference to the subjects, while the letters and figures to the left of each paragraph refer to the original manuscript and number of the page, on which that particular passage is to be found, thus the reader, by referring to the list of manuscripts at the beginning of volume I and to the bibliography at the end of volume I.I. can, in every instance, easily ascertain, not merely the period to which the passage belongs, but also exactly where it stood in the original document, thus, too. by following the sequence of the numbers in the bibliographical index, the reader may reconstruct the original order of the manuscripts and recompose the various texts to be found on the original sheet so much of it, that is to say, as by its subject matter came within the scope of this work, it may, however, be here observed that Leonardo's manuscripts contain, besides the passages here printed, a great number of notes and dissertations on mechanics, physics, and some other subjects, many of which could only be satisfactorily dealt with by specialists. I have given as complete a review of these writings as seemed necessary in the bibliographical notes. In 1651, Raphael Trichet de of Paris, published a selection from Leonardo's writings on painting, and this treatise became so popular that it has since been reprinted about two and twenty times. And in six different languages. But none of these editions were derived from the original texts, which were supposed to have been lost. But from early copies, in which Leonardo's text had been more or less mutilated, and which were all fragmentary. The oldest and on the whole the best copy of Leonardo's essays and precepts on painting is in the Vatican Library. This has been twice printed. First by Manzi, in 1817, and secondly by Ludwig, in 1882. Still, this ancient copy, and the published editions of it, contain much for which it would be rash to hold Leonardo responsible, and some portions such as the very important rules for the proportions of the human figure are wholly wanting, on the other hand they contain passages which, if they are genuine, cannot now be verified from any original manuscript extant. These copies, at any rate neither give us the original order of the texts, as written by Leonardo, nor do they afford any substitute. By connecting them on a rational scheme, indeed, in their chaotic confusion they are anything rather than satisfactory reading. The fault, no doubt, rests with the compiler of the Vatican copy, which would seem to be the source whence all the published and extensively known texts were derived, for, instead of arranging the passages himself, he was satisfied with recording a suggestion for a final arrangement of them into eight distinct parts, without attempting to carry out his scheme under the mistaken idea that this plan of distribution might be that, not of the compiler, but of Leonardo himself, the various editors, down to the present day, have very injudiciously continued to adopt this order or rather disorder, I like other inquirers, had given up the original manuscript of the Trattato della Pedra for lost, till, in the beginning of 1880, I was enabled, by the liberality of Lord Ashburnham, to inspect his manuscripts, and was so happy as to discover among them the original text of the best-known portion of the Trattato in his magnificent library at Ashburnham Place. Though this discovery was of a fragment only but a considerable fragment inciting me to further search, it gave the key to the mystery which had so long enveloped the first origin of all the known copies of the Trattato, the extensive researches I was subsequently enabled to prosecute, and the results of which are combined in this work were only rendered possible by the unrestricted permission granted me to investigate all the manuscripts by Leonardo dispersed throughout Europe, and to reproduce the highly important original sketches they contain, by the process of photogravure. Her Majesty the Queen graciously accorded me special permission to copy for publication the manuscripts at the Royal Library at Windsor, the Commission Centrale Administrative de l'Institut de France, Paris, gave me, in the most liberal manner, in answer to an application from Sir Frederick Leighton, P.R.A. corresponding member of the Institute, free permission to work for several months in their private collection at deciphering the manuscripts preserved there, the same favor which Lord Ashburnham had already granted me was extended to me by the Earl of Leicester, the Marchese de Trivalsi, and the curators of the Ambrosian Library at Milan by the Count Monzoni at Rome and by other private owners of manuscripts of Leonardo's, as also by the directors of the Louvre at Paris, the Academia at Venice, the Uffizi at Florence, the Royal Library at Turin, and the British Museum, and the South Kensington Museum. I am also greatly indebted to the librarians of these various collections for much assistance in my labours, and more particularly to Monsieur Louis Lalanne, of the Institut de France, the of the Ambrosian Library, Mr. Maw Thompson, Keeper of Manuscripts at the British Museum, Mr. Holmes, the Queen's Librarian at Windsor, the Ref v. Bain, Librarian of Christchurch College at Oxford, and the Ref a. Napier, Librarian to the Earl of Leicester at Hocan Hall. In correcting the Italian text for the press, I have had the advantage of valuable advice from the Commendator Geoff Morelli, Senator del Regno, and from Senior Gustavo Frisoni of Milan. The translation, under many difficulties, of the Italian text into English, is mainly due to Mrs. R. C. Bell, while the rendering of several of the most puzzling and important passages, particularly in the second half of volume I, owe to the indefatigable interest taken in this work by Mr. E. J. Pointerare. Finally I must express my thanks to Mr. Alfred Marx, of Ditton, who has most kindly assisted me throughout in the revision of the proof-sheets. The notes and dissertations on the texts on architecture in volume I.I.O. to my friend Baron Henri D. de of Paris, I may further mention with regard to the illustrations, that the negatives for the production of the photogravures by Monsieur de Jardin of Paris were all taken direct from the originals. It is scarcely necessary to add that most of the drawings here reproduced in facsimile have never been published before, as I am now, on the termination of a work of several years' duration. In a position to review the general tenor of Leonardo's writings, I may perhaps be permitted to add a word as to my own estimate of the value of their contents, I have already shown that it is due to nothing but a fortuitous succession of unfortunate circumstances, that we should not, long since, have known Leonardo, not merely as a painter, but as an author, a philosopher, and a naturalist. There can be no doubt that in more than one department his principles and discoveries were infinitely more in accord with the teachings of modern science, than with the views of his contemporaries. For this reason his extraordinary gifts and merits are far more likely to be appreciated in our own time than they could have been during the preceding centuries. He has been unjustly accused of having squandered his powers, by beginning a variety of studies and then, having hardly begun, throwing them aside. The truth is that the laborers of three centuries have hardly sufficed for the elucidation of some of the problems which occupied his mighty mind. Alexander von Humboldt has borne witness that he was the first to start on the road towards the point where all the impressions of our senses converge in the idea of the unity of nature, nay, yet more may be said. The very words which are inscribed on the monument of Alexander von Humboldt himself, at Berlin, are perhaps the most appropriate in which we can sum up our estimate of Leonardo's genius, Majestati Malturi Par Ingenium, London, April 1883, F.P.R. The author's intention to publish his MSS, 1. How by a certain machine many may stay some time underwater, and how and wherefore I do not describe my method of remaining underwater and how long I can remain without eating, and I do not publish nor divulge these, by reason of the evil nature of men who would use them for assassinations at the bottom of the sea by destroying ships, and sinking them, together with the men in them, nevertheless I will impart others, which are not dangerous because the mouth of the tube through which you breathe is above the water, supported on air sacks or cork, footnote, the leaf on which this passage is written, is headed with the words Casey 39, and most of these cases begin with the word come, like the two here given, which are the 26th and 27th, 7, Shuro. In the Codex Atlanticus 377a, 1170a there is a sketch, drawn with the pen, representing a man with a tube in his mouth, and at the farther end of the tube a disc. By the tube the word Chana is written, and by the disc the word Shuro. The preparation of the NSS. For publication, 2. When you put together the science of the motions of water, remember to include under each proposition its application and use. In order that this science may not be useless. Footnote: A comparatively small portion of Leonardo's notes on water power was published at Bologna in 1828 under the title Del moto e misura del acqua. D.L.D. Avinci. Admonition to readers: Three. Let no man who is not a mathematician read the Elements of my work. The disorder in the NSS. Four. Begun at Florence in the house of Piero di Braccio Martelli on the 22nd day of March 1508, and this is to be a collection without order, taken from many papers which I have copied here, hoping to arrange them later each in its place, according to the subjects of which they may treat, but I believe that before I am at the end of this task I shall have to repeat the same things several times, for which, O reader, do not blame me, for the subjects are many and memory cannot retain them all and say, I will not write this because I wrote it before and if I wished to avoid falling into this fault, it would be necessary in every case when I wanted to copy a passage that, not to repeat myself, I should read over all that had gone before, and all the more since the intervals are long between one time of writing and the next. Footnote, 1. In the history of Florence in the early part of the 5th century Piero di Braccio Martelli is frequently mentioned as Commissario della Signoria. He was famous for his learning and at his death left four books on mathematics ready for the press, comp, L.I.D.A., Famiglia Celebri Italian, Famiglia Martelli di Firenze, in the official catalogue of MSS, in the Brit, Muse, new series volume I where this passage is printed, Bardo has been wrongly given for Braccio, 2, a guy 22D Marzo 1508, the Christian era was computed in Florence at that time from the Incarnation Lady Day. March 25th. Hence this should be 1509 by our reckoning. 3. Recalto trago di mold carli quali io ho copiate. We must suppose that Leonardo means that he has copied out his own MSS, and not those of others. The first 13 leaves of them is in the Brit Muse, are a fair copy of some notes on physics. Suggestions for the arrangement of MSS treating of particular subjects. Five eight five 5. Of digging a canal put this in the book of useful inventions and in proving them bring forward the propositions already proved, and this is the proper order, since if you wish to show the usefulness of any plan you would be obliged again to devise new machines to prove its utility and thus would confuse the order of the forty books and also the order of the diagrams, that is to, say you would have to mix a practice with theory, which would produce a confused and incoherent work. 6. I am not to blame for putting forward. In the course of my work on science, any general rule derived from a previous conclusion. 7. The book of the science of mechanics must precede the book of useful inventions. Have your books on anatomy bound. Footnote, 4. The numerous notes on anatomy written on loose leaves and now in the Royal Collection at Windsor can best be classified in four books. Corresponding to the different character and size of the paper. When Leonardo speaks of litua libri di notomia he probably means the NSS, which still exist, if this hypothesis is correct the present condition of these leaves might seem to prove that he only carried out his purpose with one of the books on anatomy, a borrowed book on anatomy is mentioned in FO8, the order of your book must proceed on this plan, first simple beams, then those supported from below, then suspended in part, then wholly suspended, then beams as supporting other weights footnote, four. Leonardo's notes on mechanics are extraordinarily numerous, but, for the reasons assigned in my introduction, they have not been included in the present work. General Introductions to the Book on Painting 9.13. 9. Introduction. Seeing that I can find no subject specially useful or pleasing since the men who have come before me have taken for their own every useful or necessary theme I must do like one who, being poor, comes last to the fair. And can find no other way of providing himself than by taking all the things already seen by other buyers, and not taken but refused by reason of their lesser value. I then, will load my humble pack with this despised and rejected merchandise, the refuse of so many buyers, and will go about to distribute it, not indeed in great cities, but in the poorer towns, taking such a price as the wares I offer may be worth. Footnote, it need hardly be pointed out that there is in this proemio a covered irony. In the second and third prefaces, Leonardo characterizes his rivals and opponents more closely. His protest is directed against Neo-Latinaism as professed by most of the humanists of his time, its futility is now no longer questioned. 10. Introduction. I know that many will call this useless work. Footnote, 3. Questus a opera inutile. My opera we must here understand Libro di Padura and particularly the treatise on perspective, and they will be those of whom Demetrius footnote, for, Demetrio, with regard to the passage attributed to Demetrius. Dr. H. muller Strubing writes, I know not what to make of it. It is certainly not Demetrius Felrose that is meant and it can hardly be Demetrius Polio or Cittis. Who then can it be for the name is a very common one. It may be a clerical error for Demades and the maxim is quite in the spirit of his writings I have not however been able to find any corresponding passage either in the fragments C. Muller, or at, 80 ii, 441 nor in the supplements collected by Dietz Ryan, Muse, Volume 29, page 108. The same passage occurs as a simple memorandum in the Ms. T.R., 57. Apparently, as a note for this Proemio thus affording some data as to the time where these introductions were written, declared that he took no more account of the wine that came out their mouth in words, than of that they expelled from their lower parts, men who desire nothing but material riches and are absolutely devoid of that of wisdom, which is the food and the only true riches of the mind, for so much more worthy as the soul is than the body, so much more noble are the possessions of the soul than those of the body, and often, when I see one of these men take this work in his hand, I wonder that he does not put it to his nose, like a monkey, or ask me if it is something good to eat. Footnote, in the original, the Proemio di Prospetiva Cio de Lucidio de la 21 stands between this and the preceding one. Number 9. Introduction. I am fully conscious that, not being a literary man, certain presumptuous persons will think that they may reasonably blame me alleging that I am not a man of lepers. Foolish folks! Do they not know that I might retort as Marius did to the Roman patricians? Footnote 21, Come Mario di sei i patridi Romani. I am unable to find the words here attributed by Leonardo to Marius, either in Plutarch's life of Marius or in the Moralia, P. Moralia Nor do they occur in the writings of Valerius Maximus who frequently mentions Marius nor in Paterculus I. 11-43. Cassius All gelies, Or Macrobius. Professor E. Mendelssohn of Dorpat. The editor of Herodian. Assures me that no such passage is the found in that author, communication from Drive waller Strubing. Leonardo evidently meant to allude to some well-known incident in Roman history and the mention of Marius is the result probably of some confusion. We may perhaps read, for Marius, Manini's Agrippa. Though in that case it is true we must alter Petriti to Plibe, the change is a serious one, but it would render the passage perfectly clear, by saying, that they, who deck themselves out in the labors of others will not allow me my own, they will say that I having no literary skill, cannot properly express that which I desire to treat A footnote 26, Leme goes, che this can hardly be reconciled with mon's, Paraviaissoen's estimate of LDA Vinci's learning. Leonard D. Vinci 88 8, an admirator at and disciple de ancients. Aussage dans lord Q dans la science at il 108 a passer pour telephone men posterite. Gazette. De Beaux Arts. October 1877. But they do not know that my subjects are to be dealt with by experience rather than by words has been the mistress of those who wrote well. And so, as mistress, I will cite her in all cases. 11. Though I may not, like them, be able to quote other authors, I shall rely on that which is much greater and more worthy, on experience, the mistress of their masters, they go about puffed up and pompous, dressed and decorated with the fruits, not of their own labors, but of those of others, and they will not allow me my own, they will scorn me as an inventor, but how much more might they who are not inventors but vaunters and declaimers of the works of others be blamed. Introduction. And those men who are inventors and interpreters between nature and man, as compared with boasters and declaimers of the works of others, must be regarded and not otherwise esteemed them as the object in front of a mirror, when compared with its image seen in the mirror, for the first is something in itself, and the other nothingness, folks little indebted to nature, since it is only by chance that they wear the human form and without it I might class them with the herds of beasts. 12. Many will think they may reasonably blame me by alleging that my proofs are opposed to the authority of certain men held in the highest reverence by their inexperienced judgments, not considering that my works are the issue of pure and simple experience. Who is the one true mistress? These rules are sufficient to enable you to know the true from the false and this aids men to look only for things that are possible and with due moderation and not to wrap yourself in ignorance, a thing which can have no good result so that in despair you would give yourself up to melancholy. 13. Among all the studies of natural causes and reasons light chiefly delights the beholder, and among the great features of mathematics the certainty of its demonstrations is what preeminently tends to elevate the mind of the investigator. Perspective, therefore, must be preferred to all the discourses and systems of human learning. In this branch of science the beam of light is explained on those methods of demonstration which form the glory not so much of mathematics as of physics and are graced with the flowers of both footnote, 5, such of Leonardo's notes on optics or on perspective as bear exclusively on mathematics or physics could not be included in the arrangement of the Libro di which is here presented to the reader. They are however but few, but its axioms being laid down at great length. I shall abridge them to a conclusive brevity arranging them on the method both of their natural order and of mathematical demonstration, sometimes by deduction of the effects from the causes, and sometimes arguing the causes from the effects, adding also to my own conclusions some which, though not included in them, may nevertheless be inferred from them. Thus, if the Lord who is the light of all things vouchsafe to enlighten me, I will treat of light, wherefore I will divide the present work into three parts. Footnote, 10 in the Middle Ages for instance, by Roger Bacon, by the idea Lelewani, with whose works Leonardo was certainly familiar, and by all the writers of the Renaissance perspective and optics were not regarded as distinct sciences. Perspective, indeed, is in its widest application the science of seeing. Although to Leonardo the two sciences were clearly separate, it is not so as to their names, thus we find axioms in optics under the heading perspective. According to this arrangement of the materials for the theoretical portion of the Libro di propositions in perspective and in optics stand side by side or occur alternately. Although this particular chapter deals only with optics, it is not improbable that the words Partirolo present opera in three-party may refer to the same division into three sections which is spoken of in chapters 14 to 17. The plan of the book on painting 14-17, 14, on the three branches of perspective. There are three branches of perspective, the first deals with the reasons of the apparent diminution of objects as they recede from the eye, and is known as diminishing perspective, the second contains the way in which colors vary as they recede from the eye, the third and last is concerned with the explanation of how the objects in a picture ought to be less finished in proportion as they are remote and the names are as follows, linear perspective, the perspective of color, the perspective of disappearance. Fifteen on painting and perspective. The divisions of perspective are three, as used in drawing, of these. The first includes the diminution in size of opaque objects, the second treats of the diminution and loss of outline in such opaque objects, the third, of the diminution and loss of color at long distances. Footnote, the division is here the same as in the previous chapter number 14 and this is worthy of note when we connect it with the fact that a space of about twenty years must have intervened between the writing of the two passages. 16. The discourse on painting, perspective, as bearing on drawing, is divided into three principal sections, of which the first treats of the diminution in the size of bodies at different distances, the second part is that which treats of the diminution in color in these objects, be thorough deals with the diminished distinctness of the forms and outlines displayed by the objects at various distances. 17. On the sections of the book on painting, the first thing in painting is that the objects it represents should appear in relief, and that the grounds surrounding them at different distances shall appear within the vertical plane of the foreground of the picture by means of the three branches of perspective, which are, the diminution in the distinctness of the forms of the objects, the diminution in their magnitude, and the diminution in their color, and of these three classes of perspective the first results from the structure of the eye, while the other two are caused by the atmosphere which intervenes.